Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to the final episode of Fairy and Fantasy. Professor Olson wraps up the discussion of Garth Nix's Sabriel with a few final thoughts and speaks about how the role of fantasy literature has changed through time. I want a couple final thoughts just to sort of wrap up our final discussion of Sabriel as we didn't exactly leave that on a highly resolved note. And I just want to come back to that final question that is the last question, that question which is on the final page of the Book of the Dead. Does the walker choose the path or the path of the walker? And I think that it's kind of pointing outwards to some of the larger trends that we were beginning to um, suggest at the end of class I think that we can see, essentially, both elements in operation. There, there are obviously places where this story is asserting that there is a higher order that dictates what happens and what doesn't happen, or at least what should happen and what should not happen. And we can hear this very clearly in certain places, such as, for instance, the last lesson that uh, Sabriel's dad gives her uh, before he goes off uh, and dies, accepting his own death. Everyone and everything has a time to die. That's a rule. That is a structure which seems to... You know, so that is a path. There is a path that is laid out for people. Now we can see with people like Throlk and even more, of course, people like Caragor can choose to deviate from that path or attempt to deviate from that path. But of course what we see in the case of both of those characters in this story that ultimately they are not able to deviate from it. Though, of course, notice Caragor doesn't die. We don't last see Caragor departing out through the Ninth Gate. We last see Caragor in black cat form, sleeping, with Rana hanging from his collar. Um, so, uh, so, so even there, you know, in some ways, I guess you say, well, see, he, he did like, kind of escape death. Uh, but anyway, um, there, there, there clearly is this larger imposition of order. Um, we can see, you know, again, some of the instances we were looking at last time where, again, this higher order is being asserted, where um, the choices of the walkers are being strongly nudged uh, by circumstances. We discussed Sabriel's birth and her, uh, her sort of destiny as the abhorsen, which sort of finally manifests itself in their refusal of her death and their kind of turfing her back to life when she seems at least possibly or potentially willing um, to, to pass down the current. She's not, we don't see her desperately fighting like Throck against the stream. Um, it's the other spirits, the other abhorsen spirits that stop her and tell her, you cannot pass this way. That's just, that's not, that's not an option. That's not going to happen. Um, we can see even in smaller ways that is sort of less, uh, less sort of structural ways, moments in the story where this same idea of compulsion is brought in, where people don't want to make a choice but don't really have a choice. Even just thinking of a couple brief instances in the last reading, um, when Sabriel is deciding, do I involve my old school fellows at Wyverly College? You know, do we bring this thing to Wyverly College and make our final stand there? And she, you know, for, she's hesitating, like, oh, I don't know, that's a really terrible thing to do. I'm going to put them all in great danger. Um, you know, I think she, should I get them involved? And Touchstone's comment is they're involved anyway. Like, actually, there's not really any choice. There is no, like, 
<coughs> shall I by my actions bring them into danger, or, or, or shall I by my choice keep them out of danger? And so actually, you know, that's not really, that's not really an option. It's not really a viable choice. Just like when uh, Sabri was talking to Colonel Horace about whether or not to resist Caragor and his army at the wall, and she says, you know, you might just like back away and let him through because there's no point really in trying to stop him here at the wall. And uh, Colonel Horse is like, we can't do that, right? You know, we must. You know, it's our, our, the entire point of our existence is to resist people trying to cross the wall. We can't possibly explain to headquarters that we're just going to sit back and let like this massive army cross with no opposition whatsoever. Um, and you know, Sabriel's response is, you probably won't have a choice. I mean, like, you can, you can choose to try to resist them or not, but what, it's going to amount to the same thing in the end. Um, and so th- there's several times when we can see this kind of, like, just this, this stuff is going to happen. And there might be, in some sense, you know, uh, an appearance of choice, possibly an illusion of choice, but really these things are going to occur. But there are also moments when it's pretty clear that the choice of individuals really matters. Um, from that moment that I alluded to, where she, Sabriel, is contemplating the difference between the destinies of Caragor uh, and, and Touchstone, um, that is, the different directions that their lives took from quite similar beginnings, and of, of course, which is suggested by their physical similarities when she sees Caragor's real body. Um, and she does seem to suggest this was, this, this was a choice by, by Rogier, by, by Caragor, that he... He did this, that he went down that path and was not compelled to go down that path. Um, And Touchstone obviously made different choices. We can see even in the things where this order is being imposed, like Sabriel's birth and her heritage as the abortion, her own choices dictating, her own choices having significant, these significant moments where she deliberately embraces this destiny, culminating in that final moment in the last chapter where she refuses to run away saying, I am the abortion. Um, her final and complete uh, assumption of the mantle of a person. Um, and I think that all of these things really connect with what we can see as, I think, sort of the fundamental divisions, the fundamental thematic divisions of this story. Um, we have, well, three major binaries at work in this story. You've got charter magic and free magic. You've got life and death, and you've got the old kingdom and Ancelstia, right? And there's no, they're not all aligned with each other. That is, it's not like all three of those things are on one side and the other three are all together on the other side or anything. But we have these three sort of major dichotomies, these fundamental divisions. But the fundamental one, the most fundamental of all, seems to be that division that we talked about at the beginning between charter magic and free magic. Um, that this fundamental order seems to be essential. That there is... The charter uh, is the thing which sort of explains this overall. That's, that's why the path sometimes chooses the walker. If everything were free, if everything were just free magic, um, and there were no charter, then presumably all the walkers would be choosing their own paths, um, with, resulting, with resulting chaos. But with order imposed by the charter, um, we, there is, and that order seems to underlie both of those other two major divisions, that there is a place for things and there is a way that things should be, and especially the relationship between life and death, where the movement from death into life, that upstream movement, you know, the current in death points 
I mean, it's, death is, is intrinsically directional because of the current, right? That's the order. Uh, that is the structure of death. And those dead things, like Throck and Caragor, which try to swim upstream, are violating this order. And they, of course, are the free magic creatures, just as necromancers, non-abhorsome necromancers, who cross over into death and bring dead things out, are similarly violating that. And they use free magic to do it. So we can see that fundamental conflict with the Charter. Um, But I want to think about these larger things sort of moving towards some final some final thoughts and don't let me forget at like five after we have to stop to do course evaluations I don't want to lose time for that so if I if, we, if I haven't stopped this by five after remind me to stop at five after um, but anyway thinking about these larger themes in uh, in Saturday <coughs> I want to just kind of think a little bit more broadly kind of back up and look at uh, look at the whole scope of things from this semester you know we've seen We've seen a lot of you know, changes happen in the status and in the interests and in the focus of fairy stories and fantasy. Um, you know, we've seen fairy stories change from what they were in the Middle Ages, where we see these, you know, the, 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 the fantastic being an accepted element of mainstream lit. There's no clear, you know, like this is a different, these stories are a different kind of literature from other works of literature that, you know, if you're going to involve um, fairies or, uh, or some concept of another world, um, if you're going to involve magic, that you're now writing a different kind of story than other people. Uh, we just don't see that in the Middle Ages. We've seen historical, <coughs> the status of fantastic literature move from that through to the kind of marginalized, like mainstream but highly marginalized status of fantastic literature in the 19th century, um, with its, its being relegated to the nursery, its, its being children's lit and okay for kids, but not okay for adults. And then in the 20th century, sort of the growth from that children's genre into a sort of semi-mainstream, but still kind of marginalized and disrespected genre, where we do see a clear boundary between fantasy literature and, you know, normal literature or legitimate literature, um, which certainly wasn't there before. We've seen also the concerns and interests of the stories themselves uh, change correspondingly to this. We've seen this increasing interest in boundaries and in definitions, um, sharper boundaries between the fairy other world, between magical worlds and mundane worlds, and a, a greater and more explicit interest in that relationship with those with the themes of faith and skepticism so awfully involved. We can see, as is plainly operative in Sabriel, that we saw it. We saw it in the Princess and the Goblin. We saw it in the Chronicles of Narnia. We saw it uh, uh, in the Last Unicorn. This sort of assumption that sort of normal mainstream society is going to be skeptical about the existence of magic and the, 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 the sort of the operation of the fantastic, that that's going to be something outside the normal, um, the normal life, the normal experience, the normal sort of scope of acceptance of mainstream society. Um, and of course, even when we get to Sabriel, we can still see that operating. It's less to the forefront 
Um, but of course, we can still see it in operation. Most of this story takes place either in the Old Kingdom or on the border, um, where we're told, for instance, as is emphasized in the reaction of the town of Bain, which is the town that's closest to the, um, to the wall, you know, when the army is coming through and they ring the bells, everybody knows what that means, right? And we, you know, Sabriel's a little bit worried, like, are they really going to know what that means? Are they really going to know what to do? And the colonel's like, oh yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, they're, 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 they're done with the drill. Right. Whereas the colonel also suggests from what he gets from army headquarters that when you go further south in Anselskier, nobody's going to pay a lick of attention or understand this at all and they don't recognize the existence of charter magic and don't do any official training or anything like that. So even that, that sort of presumption we can see operating within, uh, within Garth Nix's uh, world as well. What do you think? What are your thoughts on sort of thinking about the overall scope? One of the sort of the final questions that I'm interested in is kind of revisiting now the question that I brought up at the very beginning on the first day of class. That is, the factors that seem to be involved in why there is this resistance. Why is it, having looked at how these fantastic stories are handled uh, over various different periods and in various different genres, um, what, 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 what trends do you notice or conclusions might you suggest? about why it is that modern literature and the modern literary world handles these so differently and sort of where we are with this now. Doran? Well, that's kind of my papers about it, but um, <clears throat> what I'm going with is humans uh, fear that they don't understand. And then either there's a supernatural creatures you know, air that are spring around is terrifying concepts. Naturally, you try to dismiss it as fantasy and just write it off as it's impossible to do. So. And that's interesting because, of course, in some ways... The old stories involved unknowns, at least as, at least as profoundly unknown <coughs> as the modern ones, um, and yet there wasn't quite that same sense. Goodness knows there's some fear involved in Sir Orpheo, right? Um, but it's not quite, certainly not expressed in the same way. Kel? Um, I think I found that this sort of journey uh, recently in Sabriel, um, I was thinking a lot about, you know, the random girls at Waverly College who are woken up in the middle of the night by their RAs and told, hey, we got to go kill some dead things. Yeah. Your response to that is, like, is my life supposed to be like this, I guess? So having to immerse yourself in something as strange as fairy is, I guess, a, a frightening or an uncomfortable experience for um, a lot of modern readers. And I guess that tension is what turns people off to a lot of, like, the, the higher fantasy, I guess. Sure. Can um, With the earlier fairy tales that we've read, um, like the ones back from medieval times, people viewed the world as full of unknowns. They only really knew their, slo- their <clears throat> local area, their, their barren or their village. People very rarely traveled out of that, so the world was full of unknowns, so anything that they saw they did that they didn't automatically know, like fairy, was just seen as another part of the larger world, where today we like to think of ourselves as knowing everything. And whenever we're confronted by something we don't know, um, we automatically see it as unfamiliar, chaotic, unpredictable, and frightening. And so that's why I think um, fairy and fantasy is sort of separated out because it's something so different and something so unnormal, something so not normal from what we're used to. Yeah, and that I think one of the reasons why people seem to be threatened by it. Because the idea that there is something strange and unknown and possibly even 
horror of horrors, unknowable and, un- and not fully comprehensible by us, that's in conflict with our fundamental world because we do believe that we understand things, or at least we are in progress to understanding everything. And the idea that there are things that are in fact beyond our comprehension um, is that that concept, even imaginatively investing in a world where things don't work in ways that we understand, any ways possibly that we can understand, violates our worldviews in ways in which it certainly did not in the Middle Ages. They were much more comfortable with the fact that they didn't know stuff. And you're, uh, one of the things you said, Kat, was sort of reminding me of this uh, of C.S. Lewis's theory for basically the connection between fantasy and science fiction uh, and how those two are really intimately related. Um, and basically he was saying that uh, his, his theory says that it, it is about the unknown. You need this unknown world. You need a terra incognita in order to have these stories of the marvelous and be exploring these things. And in the Middle Ages, like the forest next door is unknown, right? You don't know what goes on in the depths of the forest. And so, you know, you go into the forest and you're likely to find fairies and all, all, all sorts of things. Whereas in the modern world, Increasingly, as our own confidence in our exploration and understanding of the world, of our world, has continued, that basically the Terra Incognita had to move outwards and became other planets, um, and that that's the and that's one of the primary impulses, C.S. Lewis theorizes, behind science fiction, um, that is interplanetary science fiction. This idea to sort of still locate a a Terra Incognita. Which will, be, which will allow a writer and readers to explore this idea of the fantastic and the unknown in ways which are not totally scary and, ironically, not totally alien to our normal way of looking at things. Um, we'd be okay with the fact that Mars is freaky and different. We're not okay with something happening next door that's freaky and different. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, good. Jeff? I... Felt the whole time uh, for this entire class. When you first asked the question, I related it immediately to poems of age of innocence and experience. Mm-hmm. And with what everyone has said, I feel like the the child side of this, or this type of literature being appropriate for children, deals with the fact that they can believe in something like that, and particularly in a modern adult society. We're told that things like that don't happen, and we're forced to face these harsh realisms every day about the way the world works and hope and all of these things, that it makes it seem not plausible to occur, and it's difficult for you to... I mean, I know personally it's been difficult for me reading some of these people, like, oh, okay, <laughs> I, and I sometimes struggle even understanding yeah. because I'm conflicting with it. I refuse to let it be real. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a major issue. Yeah, I, to let it be real, I think, is a really interesting way of expressing that. Um, in order really to to get, in order really to get into these stories, you have to you have to invest in it. You have to. I mean, we've been talking about like people not being willing to express, to accept strange things. And in saying that, I'm not talking about like the real existence of elves next door. Um, but what we are talking about is even the willingness to invest what Tolkien called secondary belief in something, to really invest yourself in a story uh, and sort of lose yourself in it, um, when it violates the kind of propriety which we have been acculturated to, there can be a real sort of gap with that. And I agree with kids. Kids have not been fully 
have not been fully acculturated into that. And interesting, I mean, I think that we can still see relics of, it's a little bit less ironclad than it appeared to have been in the Victorian era, but even now, there's still this, it's not just that kids have not yet been fully acculturated into, you know, adult skepticism of the modern era, um, but they're still in progress, and so still kind of open, but they're not even compelled to do that. There comes a time, I'm not sure exactly when the time is, but there comes a time before which it's okay, And, and even modern skeptical adults will not say, well, you have not yet fully learned to despise this as, you know, one day you should, but we'll actually say it's okay for you. Go ahead and do that. And then, again, there comes a time, and I don't know when that time comes. Legal adulthood, puberty, I don't know, when, when it's you know, not okay anymore. And honestly, this is one of the things which to me was most fascinating about the, the Harry Potter phenomenon that is in, by, by the phenomenon I allude not to not not to the films but to the release of the books you know when the books were first being released um, and everyone was reading them like literally everyone on planet Earth seemed to be reading them when they were coming out and there was it's especially initially it became that like, people slowly seemed to become more comfortable with it. By the time book six and seven came out, people weren't hiding their copies of Harry Potter. Like adults weren't hiding their copies of book six and seven. But but four and five, there was still this like, yeah, I'm buying this for my child, right? And I'm and or and people would apologize for having read it, um, you know, or like be shy about admitting that they'd read it. So there was there was clearly this this inhibition because it was crossing that line. And that's it's, for me one of the things that was really fascinating. Um, there are lots of things uh, that. There are lots of. I mean, I'm not an enormous Harry Potter fan, but um, but certainly they were remarkable in this. They were a fascinating case study of the modern world's relationship with fantasy um, because it did cross lines and it drew people across those lines. I think in really interesting ways. Um, yeah, Duncan. Uh, I'm with you on that. I think the biggest thing actually is, or not the biggest, and one of the one of the bigger things in modern society, especially, is. A fear of seeming childish, um, just because we pride ourselves so much on being reasonable, being grown ups, being you know, and associating those two things, right? Being yeah. grown up with being and being mature. And yeah, yeah. Which seems just, to imply skeptical. Yeah, yeah, even. yeah. And it's it's like childhood <coughs> is the time for creativity and for <coughs> for wonder, but like you said, once you cross over that boundary. You have to be. You have to be grown up. <laughs> you yeah. Have to, you can't think that way anymore. And I think that's that's a big part of it. Is you don't want to seem childish. Yeah. And and it seems that if you look at uh, one thing that I've been kind of increasingly interested in is to look at what people say in blurbs of praise that they write for great books. You know, for new books and things. How they, tra- especially works which have high literary pretensions, right? Not just like you know the latest romance novel or whatever, but a, but a, but you know a book which serious literary people are supposed to take seriously. I, th- I mean, again, being in the English department, you know, when we're reviewing, like we just recently were talking about whom to invite for Sotheby weekend next year, and so you know we're looking at like here's what different people are saying about these people's works and all all that stuff. And you know, one of the things that, that gets emphasized is a connection to the real world. Like this person has a like a gritty, honest view of reality, and it's almost like you you have to justify creativity that way. 
you have to justify. Like it's it's not it's 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 not enough just to say just to have imagination. You have to you have to be giving a a new light on reality. Like now, like this this is a you know, a, and that's that does seem to be there seems to me to be a kind of insecurity there and a kind of self justification. Like I said, it's not it's not okay just to be imagining stuff. Jordan. Um, I would take issue with uh, C.S. Lewis's definition, partially because I think that would imply that science fiction is not, was not would not be a mode of It might be slightly more mainstream than fantasy. I'm not really sure. Well, no. Basically, he's arguing that they're very similar in origin. That the impulses behind the two of them are very similar. So, like, in that way, it puts them in a similar. Uh, it sounded like the fantasy was more acceptable. The other reason is I think part of the underlying cause behind the shift away from one gun theory is we have our own magic now. We have the, the colors and the airplanes and the microwave ovens that make food, get cooked food in moments. You know, we, we have our own wizards who do these crazy things with particles we've never heard of and who, who, who can make wavelengths, you know, do yeah. whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, I think goodness knows that most people that I know you know, look at things like the iPhone is at least vaguely magical. <laughs> I now have this thing which can perform. I, I can do. I don't. I don't know how it works, but it can look at all the things that it can do. I mean, it's, there's there's a kind of awe that people talk about. I agree, and I think we can see. It's one of the things that I find really interesting about Nixon's work, and the the way he's not the first or the only one, of course, to make this opposition. But the way that he has technology and magic operating separately in the separate kingdoms, and the kind of not explicit antagonism between the two, but sort of alternatives, right? In a sense, both of them are magical, they just each have their thing, right? Uh, one is technology and one is magic, but they're both, you know, special and kind of wondrous. Remember Touchstone's reaction when he sees the loudspeaker and he's like, ooh, tell me about the magic box. It <laughs> makes people's voices loud. That's really awesome, right? I mean, so we can see that same kind of wonder. Uh, involved there, and even like, just like the, the tanks and stuff at the end, even to some extent the machine guns, right? There's a sense of like, wow, did you see the way it just ripped through that whole like bunch of dead people? That was fantastic, right? <laughs> it's a different, it's a different, there's a different kind of wonder, but but I agree that there's a kind of substitution there. It's not that it's... There's even a few explicit comparisons like calling each other lengths and the animals as good as an electric bulbs in Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. Jeff? Um, I've been looking at this class a lot about using um, the text in a high school classroom. Um, and one of the big, you mentioned connection to life, and that is a huge objective in high schools. Getting the kids to relate to Shakespeare by talking about the universal theme of parents sucking and divorce. And, <laughs> oh, my mom's divorced. Well, then you get Shakespeare. Uh, Hamlet's good for you. And, <laughs> and I. Pieces like this are are useful for certain students, yet when there's an objective of connecting them to real life, I end up doing things like the Chronicles of Narnia can relate to cultural differences in high schools because of different species of animals and <laughs> different colors of skins, and it gets ridiculous. And yeah. I. I personally think that's another thing that is contributing to high schoolers not being able to enjoy Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and instead thinking it's lame or stupid that they have to read it. Right, because th there's no sense of you, you are entering into a different and marvelous world. You know, Leave your own world behind imaginatively and, and have this different imaginative experience. It's got to be in the end all about 
the real world. And even more, as you point out, and it's kind of pathetic. Mm-hmm. And I mean that both in its modern and its its old sense of full of pathos, that it has to be all about you. That is how we teach kids to read is first, think, think of it, all books are a mirror, right? Find yourself in the book that you're reading. And I mean, it's, and this is uh, one of my one of my English teacher pet peeves uh, is the, the quasi-word relatable that people use as an adjective applying to books. I found this book very relatable, meaning I can relate it to myself, um, which again, I find pitiful and pitiable, frankly, that that is the experience of reading that one even is looking for. Like, I, I, want, to, I, want, to see, I want to see myself in a different way, and I agree. This is that is that does seem to be the way that we teach people, and the way that we're sort of compelled to do fight the good fight, jazz. Um, <laughs> final thoughts. We've reached the time a little bit past the time where I said we were supposed to stop. Final thoughts. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, that's it for the fairy and fantasy course. I hope you have enjoyed listening. If you would like to continue learning more about fantasy literature, considering enrolling in one of the Mythgard Institute's many courses, you can learn about Tolkien, Lewis, and other masters of fantasy, delve into Arthurian literature, or study science fiction. All the courses can be audited or taken for credit. For further information, go to www.mythgard.org. That's M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D. The Tolkien Professor's website can be found at www.tolkienprofessor.com. As always, on behalf of Professor Corey Olson and myself, Laura Burkholz, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>